reached My Fellow Layman with Lena Ajabani, a show for the uninitiated layman hosted by a fellow layman. I cover stories making headlines, I provide context from scratch, and of course, I do it all in layman's terms. My fellow layman, I am so grateful to be back after an almost one-year hiatus. Basically, 2020 just about sums it up. It's been a challenging year for me, and I'm sure for a lot of you tuning in, we all have our reasons, but I am back and for the long haul, God willing. So to my new layman, welcome to the show, and to my old layman, welcome back. First of all, I'd like to announce that I've created a new simulcast format for the show, which means that from now on, episodes will not only be available in audio format as a podcast, but also in video format, which you can find on the My Fellow Layman YouTube channel. Now, I will be recording episodes from the WRP studio here in Paris, as those of you watching can see. Um, and I will be accompanied by the lovely and talented studio manager, Mariam al -Abedi. Is that how you say it? I say Mariam al -Yabadi. Mariam al -Yabadi. It's the Arabic versus the Farsi. Oh, so yeah. <laughs> so Mariam, by the way, also hosts a show of her own. It's a fantastic podcast called Paris Reimagined. It has such an original and beautiful cause. Can you please tell us what your show is about in a nutshell? So the show is about um, people who are standing up against the status quo and working for something different here in Paris. I love that. You know, too many people blindly accept the status quo and go, well, that's just how the cookie crumbles. But it's not. I have a quote from President or former President Barack Obama. Progress is not inevitable. It is the result of choices we make together. Absolutely. That's beautiful. And if anyone would like to give that a listen, I'll include all the information in the show notes. Okay, so that concludes housekeeping. And now, without further ado, let's discuss today's episode. We'll be relaunching the show with a post-U.S. presidential elections 2020 discussion because whether you're an Americanophile or an Americanophobic, um, just about every man and his dog were sitting at the edge of their seats watching the votes come in one day at a time. The votes pendulated in favor of Trump towards the beginning and then slowly but surely in favor of Biden. It felt like four days of Groundhog Day. I honestly got election fatigue. It was the new coronavirus fatigue. But this election has been very different from previous American presidential elections. It took place during a global pandemic, for one. So there was a surge in people voting via mail in order to avoid crowds. And this contributed to the delay in counting votes and declaring a winner sooner because it takes longer to verify a vote by mail than an in-person vote. There is the physical aspect of opening these envelopes. The registration information of the voter has to be verified. And whenever there is any sort of irregularity, then this too must get processed. So all in all, it takes time. 
None of this came as a surprise, though. It was predicted by state officials that votes would take longer to count as a result of not being equipped to handle such a large amount of mailed-in ballots. Um, it was predicted that we would see a shift to the favor of Trump when in-person votes first started getting counted and that once the mailed-in votes started getting counted a little later, uh, we would see the numbers shift in favor of Biden because Trump supporters were discouraged by him to vote via mail. Trump, of course, has been for a while now laying the groundwork to try and create the illusion that uh, mailed-in ballots was going to contribute to wide-scale voter fraud. He also insisted that the election results should be revealed night of election day or the following morning. In other words, trying to cast doubts over having to wait a little longer for the results. In the past, um, an unusual incident had happened in 2000 with the Al Gore versus George Bush presidential election, albeit with very different circumstances, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. It was also predicted that Donald Trump would have a very defiant reaction to losing. He had been saying all along that either he wins and that if he doesn't, then that means the election was rigged. Well, it's now been well over a week since Biden won, but Trump is refusing to concede as is traditional to do once a voter is projected. I don't advise you to do so, but you can head to his Twitter account to see his latest rants. Uh, most of them, of course, have been flagged by Twitter as misleading. He's not just claiming fraud and corruption. At one point, he was calling to stop counting legitimate mailed-in votes, even those postmarked before their respected state deadlines, which didn't make sense, of course, and was very lopsided as well because... Trumpsters were protesting that counting stopped in some states, basically where he was ahead, and vice versa. His administration has been taking legal action to contest results, but his lawsuits continue to get denied in court one after the other as he fails to put forward any legitimate proof. And even though it is rumored that his wife Melania and his son-in-law Jared Kushner have advised him to concede, it doesn't seem like something Trump will be doing anytime soon. Now, votes are still being counted, which is a very normal practice at every election, but Joe Biden is the projected winner. And when I say projected, it's important to understand that a projection is like a forecast, so not all the votes have been counted, but enough votes have been counted, meaning there's a big enough margin and enough data has been analyzed as well, like political, economic, and demographic data, making it possible for specialists to calculate that a candidate is the winner. So basically, there are many election-calling operations. And this time around, the first to call the winner was Decision Desk HQ. They're a private company that tabulates votes and data in order to call a race. Um, other election calling operations include the Associated Press, a very well-known news agency, of course, and they sent reporters to each election center, report back the vote counts, and just like Decision Desk HQ, the vote count is measured up against data of the specific state and counties concerned. You also have a similar model called the National Election Pool, which is a partnership between various news organizations, amongst which CNN is a member, by the way, 
And all these networks collect voter counts and collect exit polls, which are polls conducted with voters as they exit voting centers. And then each of these networks have their own experts to make projections based on this shared data and analyzing it against other insider data like trends and what have you. Needless to say, these are all very sophisticated and complex systems, but that's how that works. So that just about sums things up as to where things stand today, but there's so much to discuss. I'd like to start by playing a phone conversation I recently had with not just an American citizen, but a poll worker, and also a Democrat living in a red state. Yikes. <laughs> Hit it, Miriam. I have Meg on the line. Hi, Meg. Hi, Lena. Thank you so much for taking the time. I'm just going to give a little context. Uh, Meg is an old friend. We met back in the day when she was a fellow Parisian herself, and we lived at the same student dorm. Um, those were the days. I mean, I, I wonder, do you get any nostalgia when you watch Emily in Paris, if you watch it? <laughs> no, it's funny. I have not watched Emily in Paris um, because I've been told I will just get angry at it. <laughs> so. <laughs> you will. Yeah, my friends did a podcast about it, um, so I'm thinking to watch it just so that I can listen to their podcast and laugh at all the jokes. But oh, um, nice! What podcast is this? Oh, well, I'll look it up. Um, you can give it to me later on. I'll add it. Yeah, to I will. Notes, that that's funny. All right, you were a poll worker uh, at your state of South Carolina. This is to be clear, a job done on election day. Um, yes. Um, and so in South Carolina, just to the nomenclature is different in every single state. In South Carolina, my official position was poll manager, which implies more power than I actually had. But that is that is what it's called. And poll managers can work. Usually they just work election day, but they can also work at early voting centers and at any primaries. Got it. And so what you did basically was facilitated voting by checking voters in, pointing them to the ballot marking stations, explaining to them how they can scan their ballots, etc. Exactly. And I will just make a disclaimer that you are strictly speaking about your personal experience and not in any official capacity. Yeah, definitely. Why did you volunteer? Or Well, it's not really a volunteer uh, job. It's, it's, it's a job that you're trained to do and and paid to do, but why did you opt to go out and become a, a, a poll worker? So I submitted my application to be a poll worker the evening of the first presidential debate. I literally, I had my computer out. I, I think I'd been screaming at the TV a whole bunch and I pulled out my computer and I Googled Charleston County election worker. Sure. Trump said, I encourage my people to go and be at the polls and yada, yada, yada. And I thought... That rubbed you the wrong way. It made me so mad. I had these images of people with AK-47s and AR-15s standing outside of the polling location trying to stop people from voting. And I will say that that's not a thing. They're not allowed to do that. They will be asked to leave. But I just had this image that they would try. And I thought, good luck trying to find there. I, I, knew, I knew that that situation was unlikely, but it really motivated me. I wanted to be one of the people who I know I can be neutral and I wanted to be there and I wanted to see it happen and I wanted to be a part of it. And I wanted to make sure that everybody 
who legally can vote was able to vote that day. All the training was online. Um, I found it really, really interesting. I really enjoyed it. And I, I wanted to do more than vote. I wanted to uphold this democratic system that we believe in so strongly that we sometimes put it on other countries. You know, I wanted to be a part of it. I didn't, I didn't just want to work for a campaign. I wanted to be a part of the election process because I do think that it is the most important thing we can do as Americans. I believe that voting is the most important thing we well, can do. Well, it's what separates really you from, other, from a non-American is your right to vote. You know? Exactly. But uh, apart from that, you did your civic duty and then some. And now he is crying fraud. Yeah. And so he's, ca- he's crying election fraud on a number of accounts. Um, I will say, having seen what South Carolina does to make sure that people don't vote fraudulently, to reconcile all the different votes, I feel very confidently in our state. Our state went red, but you can see how close it was, and you can see where the different votes came from. Um, Jamie Harrison was a Democratic candidate for senator going up against Lindsey Graham. And you could see that he had won the majority of the absentee ballots. Most of the absentee ballots coming in were for him. But then on election day, most of the people who came and voted on election day were Republicans and they voted for Lindsey Graham. And this is relevant. Um, sorry. Sorry, that was my dog being upset about. wanted to get featured. So let me say that again. He is calling fraud and it's baseless. He has yet to provide any evidence that there has been fraud committed. And it's worth noting that it is so rare for there to actually be fraud in an election. It's less than a percent of a percent. And it's because we have all these great systems in place. He is saying that these absentee ballots, he's implying that many of them are not legally cast votes. It's a really scary thing for a president to say Um, because they are legally cast votes. They're literally absentee ballots. He's saying that people were sent absentee ballots who did not request them. There were cases of fake absentee ballots being sent out, but they wouldn't be counted once they got in because they're not real. He's saying that they are finding all these absentee ballots thrown out and that they all say Trump. There were 300,000 absentee ballots misplaced by the the U.S. Postal Service. So that's a thing. But because of some of the cases that the Trump campaign filed, those ballots might not even be counted because they didn't get there on time. And frankly, it's worth noting that Trump's administration has been systematically defunding the U.S. Postal Service. Final thoughts. Is he going to concede? Oh, God. No, I don't think so. I don't think he'll I don't think he will ever admit that he lost. I don't think there will ever be the kind of concession speech that we have seen from other candidates. This is his lame duck period, as we call it. He can't, there's not much he can really do now. Historically, it's very difficult for presidents to get anything done in this period between the election and the inauguration. Certainly, there are things he can still try to do. I wonder if he'll care enough to do that. If he's not going to still be president, will he care? He may still try to fire Anthony Fauci. He may still try to like make it as difficult as possible for a Biden administration to succeed. I do think that he has enough sensible people working for him that they will facilitate the transition. Trump is always saying, I was handed a complete and total mess when I stepped into the op- this office. 
Biden really will be getting a complete and total mess. And I, I think we're going to see a lot of his administration officials stepping away before it's actually time to transition. I think that even if there are recounts, um, and there are going to be recounts, I don't know that the election results are going to change. This isn't 2000 again. We don't have ballots that are, are literally being counted incorrectly. It's been 20 years. And this was a very careful count, you know, in places like Michigan and Wisconsin and Georgia, these were very careful accounts. So I don't anticipate the election results changing. I'm not too worried about that. I'm worried about his supporters. I'm worried that he's given them too much free reign. I mean, Trump literally said, proud boys stand back and stand by. Why? As much as I think that he might just go away, he might just decide not to do anything for the last next three months. He could also try to do some pretty terrible things. And so I think until he is no longer the sitting president of the United States, I'm going to be worried. So for example, Mitch McConnell said that this week, a new COVID relief plan is going to be discussed in Congress. Well, Trump could still veto it. Trump still has presidential power, or he might just refuse to sign it into law. He can do executive orders. They could be challenged in the court. Like, we still have a few more months of this. And so every time I see something like, oh, we don't have to talk about Trump ever again. Like, no, we, we got three more he months of it. He still has a legitimate power. And so that COVID relief plan, that's top of my mind. Um, he's still not going to do anything to put forward a new health care plan. There's a lot of things that the American people desperately need that may just not get done because Trump doesn't feel like it or because he's still fighting battles in the court. All that said, I'm going to focus on what's coming out about the transition, the appointments that Biden puts forward for his new cabinet members. I'm going to be really interested in that um, because he had so many strong opponents in the primaries. I think that there are a lot of really great candidates to fill these positions. A Biden administration full of these incredibly qualified people who ran against him, I think would be pretty great. This will open a whole other can of worms, but you have, of course, the Democratic Party kind of split between Biden and then the more leftist candidates. If the worst thing that happens after an era of Trump is that the two-party system falls apart, I will not cry. Um, I, I won't, because I think that the two-party system is incredibly unhealthy. I don't idolize France maybe as much as I once did, but I love how France does its elections. I love that it's a two-part election. You know, you have all of the candidates and then there's a runoff between the top two. And I think that would do so much good for America to get all of those ideas out and have, you know, the, really this battle royale for what issues are the most important. And everybody votes and it matters. It matters who you vote for no matter if they're one of the main parties or one of their, or if they're one of the small parties. And then you have a runoff between the top two. I think that would be such a healthy thing for a country as large and diverse as ours. Anyone would be afraid to go and change, you know, uh, something that even existed, you know, for a hundred years. We need to shift away from that because we live differently than we used to. And I, I will be interested to see what the latest data from the census says. I think that's going to be very informative, but it's time for change. Our districts are so incredibly gerrymandered. I want to, I, I'd love to see that done away with. And it's going to take 
Democrats having to humble themselves to take that risk that it might hurt them getting reelected and not gerrymandered in their favor. But it has to take a party that's willing to set politics aside and make it fairer. I don't think I've talked to a single American who was happy with their, the way everything works. And I, so I do think it's going to take citizens now calling and saying there should be a neutral or a bipartisan commission that is tasked with fixing this. And, and it's because there was a census this year, the districts will be redrawn sometime in the next four years. And so it is relevant. And so they will have this chance to undo gerrymandering. How do you now plan on coexisting with your uh, Trump-supporting neighbors? The same way I have. You know, we're going to have conversations. When things start to get really heated, like both of us are digging in rather than hearing each other, we usually call an end to the debate. I work on just trying to hear the explanation of why they support what they support. And I'm going to work on just trying to explain the ideologies that I believe in in as logical a way as possible. Um, if you do not believe that people of color have the same rights as us, if you do not believe that gay people have the same rights as us, to me, that's not a political issue. That's a human rights issue. And if we can't agree, yeah, if we can't agree on that, then I don't, I don't know how to change you. That's, that's on you. But with all these other things, disagreements about economics, disagreements about social services, disagreements on how we interpret freedom of religion in the United States, I can have those debates. I can have those and I can have those calmly and I can have those from a place of empathy and I will continue to have those. Thanks, Meg. Have a great Thanks, day. Uh, test, uh, test negative and stay positive. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and that was Meg. Okay, so it's been quite a climactic election and the melodrama continues to follow this administration. It's been the gift that keeps on giving when it comes to late night comedy talk shows, memes and TikToks. But of course, all jokes aside, there were some serious issues riding on this election and there still are. So we'll discuss all that and more. But first, let's set up some context. <music> First of all, why all the scrutiny? Now, I'm not American, but I've had at least one American ask me, and I've heard this question before. It's a popular musing. Why do people, regardless of their nationality, care about American politics? Well, in general, there's no denying the dominance the United States has over the global order. It has one of the biggest, if not the biggest, economy in the world. I will leave it a little vague here because... It's neck and neck with China at the moment, and there are so many arguable ways to define the performance of a country's economy in general nominal terms versus taking into consideration factors like inflation, purchasing power, division of wealth, etc. Um, not to mention coronavirus adding a whole other layer of fluctuations. But regardless, in nominal terms, the American GDP which is, well, I'll give you a little economic refresher here, the collective value of the goods and services produced in the country and consumed in a given year accounts for about a fourth of the world's GDP. So it's up there. 
Other than that, it also objectively has the most powerful military in the world. I think it's safe to say that, taking into consideration various factors, certainly when it comes to budget, we're talking a budget of $716 billion when Russia comes in second at $44 billion. And apart from these quantitative features, its qualitative features also contribute to its superpower status. For example, notwithstanding America's foreign policy being somewhat controversial these last four years, but the U.S. still demands a seat at the table, politically speaking. And culturally, its influence reverberates around the world with its television programs, Hollywood movies, video games, music, you name it. Now, this year specifically, the reason the world was even more captivated by the fate of the U.S. elections is because of Donald Trump. It doesn't matter where you're from and what you stand for, but we all remember where we were on November 8th, 2016, when he won office and caused a global shockwave. So for long years later, this was the moment of truth. Trump detractors wanted America to redeem itself, so to speak, for electing what they believe to be the worst American president in modern history, or else suffer the fate of another term of what they argued would be possibly the greatest threat to American democracy. There's, of course, a long list of accusations made against this incumbent president, or should I say the now outgoing president. The top critiques being chaos, incompetency, lies, corruption, racism, xenophobia, populism, demagoguery, and most notably in today's COVID-19 era, anti-science. Now, I'd like to recap some key moments in American history for a better understanding of the state of America today. This, of course, is a huge challenge. The history of the United States is so dense, so I won't cover it in depth, obviously, but I'll provide a sort of timeline. I thought we could play a little game of trivia, and Mariam here has agreed to be a good sport and get quizzed. Now, don't feel too bad for her because it's going to be a multiple choice type quiz in true American fashion, and you guys tuning in can play along. All right, here goes. Mariam, the United States was first born following a revolution which separated it from A, British rule, B, Canadian rule, C, Dutch rule. Hmm. As a British citizen, I can pretty <laughs> firmly say British rule. <laughs> <laughs> That's correct. So before the United States came to be the United States, it was part of the British crown. Now, it didn't belong to it as America is geographically today. Far from it. But I'm going to paint you a little picture here. We all know that Native Americans, or what some call American Indians or indigenous Americans, first arrived and settled in the Americas. Now, how did this happen? Well, the popular theory is that towards the end of the Ice Age, there was a land bridge between Siberia and the Americas. And this land is called Beringia. Now, it's almost impossible to have exact dates, but it's believed that humans walked from Siberia to Beringia at various times, settled there for various durations, and then made their way to various regions of the Americas also at various times, creating their own civilizations and cultures. So all this could have happened between almost 30,000 to 15,000 years ago. 
Then, towards the end of the 15th century, so a little over 500 years ago, Europeans started arriving in North America. You have the Spanish expedition headed by Dora the Explorer. Just kidding. Christopher Columbus. He was an Italian explorer who had made a deal with the king of Spain at the time to venture out in order to discover lands and riches and keep 10% for himself. Um, Originally, he was trying to find an easier route to Asia, but he happened to stumble across the Americas or the New World, as the European settlers referred to it. And over the years, more ships were sent and the Spanish began establishing their colonies and trade posts. Then other countries started following suit, like the French, the Portuguese, and then came the English. Now they established their colony in the beginning of the 17th century in 1607 with the foundation of Jamestown in Virginia. And here is where they famously began growing tobacco. And then shortly after that, hundreds of thousands of slaves were brought over from Africa and sold to work in cotton and tobacco plantations. And by the beginning of the 18th century, the British had established up to 13 colonies. Now, towards the mid-18th century, a global conflict took place called the Seven Years' War. And we won't go down that rabbit hole, but basically it spanned over five continents. And as far as the British are concerned, they emerged pretty much victorious. However, the war had weakened them financially. And so they decided to impose taxes on their 13 colonies. And here is where shit hits the fan because the colonies had very little representation in government back in London. Um, What are the 13 colonies? So the 13 colonies are colonies that the British had established in the Americas. So they're different states in America? Yes, absolutely. So it started off with Jamestown, and that's how the United States started. started with these 13 colonies that eventually became states, and then it grew. Now, the event which is thought to be the beginning of the American Revolution is the Boston Tea Party in 1773. It was a political protest against the tax on tea where the American colonists started dumping it into the harbor as an act of defiance. Now, the 13 colonies would eventually band together to fight for their independence. And the armed conflict started with the famous battles of Lexington and Concord in 1775 and from which the famous shot heard around the world came from, as well as the fictional quote, the British are coming, which wasn't actually said. Then eventually came what is today celebrated by Americans as their Independence Day, the 4th of July, back in 1776, when the government of the 13 colonies, or what's called the Continental Congress, adopted what the founding fathers, but mostly Thomas Jefferson, had drafted, the Declaration of Independence. Now, it should be noted that the American Revolutionary War didn't officially end until 1783, with the Treaty of Paris and Britain accepting the loss of their colonies. Okay, let's continue the quiz. We're still in the 18th century, well over 200 years ago. 1787, the founding fathers draw up a new constitution for the United States. 1789, George Washington is elected president, the first president of the United States. 
1791, 10 amendments were made to the Constitution known as the Bill of Rights. Mariam, what was the first of these amendments? Was it A, the right to bear arms, B, the right to a trial by an impartial jury, or C, freedom of religion, speech, the press, and assembly? Now, I know if bearing arms was the Second Amendment, so I'm going to go with C. Correct. Freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and freedom of assembly, as in the right to protest. This brings everything very full circle. Notice these freedoms are placed from the very outset of America's history. So it's understandable to see such an emotional election this year when many felt that these essential rights were being threatened by the outgoing administration. Now, continuing along our timeline, uh, we're entering the 19th century, and at the very beginning, 1803, the famous Louisiana Purchase took place, where President Thomas Jefferson made a deal with France and purchased for a bargain price the Louisiana Territory, and by the mid-19th century, the United States gained even more land, like California and New Mexico, and that was following the Mexican War. Now, a big part of American history is its civil war. It all started when those who were against slavery formed the Republican Party in 1854. In 1860, their candidate, Abraham Lincoln, became president. But 11 pro-slavery states in the South formed what was called the Confederate States of America, and this sparked a civil war which eventually ended in 1865 with the defeat of the South, the abolishment of slavery, and eventually the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Mariam, which amendment abolished slavery? Was it A, the 13th, B, the 14th, C, the 15th? Hmm. Based on the famous Netflix documentary, I'm going to go for 13th. Yes, and I don't know of this documentary. What is it? Oh my God, it's amazing. So it's called 13th and it's about how uh, the mass incarceration of uh, African-Americans in America today is actually like a, the mod a modern form of slavery. And it's, it's just, the argument is that like the 13th Amendment is still in place today. Even wow. Though, yeah, check it out. I really recommend it. Okay, definitely. It's crazy how this issue dates back over a century and a half ago, but the issue of race never seemed to really go away. Even after the abolishment of slavery, it took another century before the Civil Rights Act was signed into law in 1964, which basically put an end to segregation and banned employment discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. And it's worth noting that this act was put forth by President John F. Kennedy, but he was assassinated a year before it got signed into law. And several years following the signing of this law, black civil rights leader Martin Luther King was assassinated. And here we are today, half a century after that, and America is still facing race-related issues like police brutality and what seems to be a prejudice against Black Americans, thus the birth of the Black Lives Matter movement. I think this is important historical context to consider when looking at the state of affairs today and also in order to have more compassion for the Black Lives Matter movement. Okay, 
Let's cover America in the 20th century. With the beginning of the 20th century, of course, came World War I from 1917 to 1918, with America joining the Allies to defeat the Axis powers. This was followed by many significant events like women being given the right to vote in 1920, um, Congress giving indigenous people the right to citizenship in 1924, and then millions of people becoming unemployed in 1929, triggering what was called the Great Depression. Mariam, what caused this? Was it A, the sale and manufacture of alcoholic liquor being outlawed? the crash of the Wall Street stock market, or the start of the Second World War? Uh, I believe it was the crash of the Wall Street stock market. It was. Okay, so following along our 20th century timeline, President Franklin D. Roosevelt launched the New Deal recovery program in 1933. The world would eventually go into World War II, with America joining in 1941, after the Japanese attacked its fleet at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. Side note, if you didn't watch the movie, go watch it. It's starring Ben Affleck and Josh Hartnett. Did you watch that movie? I haven't actually seen it. You really should. What's it called? Pearl Harbor. Ah, of course. It's a good one. And it's starring Ben Affleck, so. <laughs> All right. Now, the Americans joined the Allies against the Axis powers, and the war ended with the defeat of the Axis in 1945, with Germany capitulating and the U.S. dropping two atomic bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Now, by the mid-20th century, the U.S. looked to fight communism. It all started with what came to be called the Truman Doctrine, a dramatic speech given to Congress by President Truman. The U.S. goes into the Cold War with the Soviet Union, which doesn't collapse until a little under half a century later. Now, other mid-20th century key events include the American troops going into war on behalf of South Korea against North Korea and China, the Cuban Missile Crisis that took place in 1961, in 1969, Neil Armstrong became the first person to walk on the moon. In 1974, President Nixon resigns after the Watergate scandal. And in 1979, the U.S. Embassy in Tehran, Iran, was seized by radicalized students causing a 444-day hostage crisis and a failed rescue attempt. In 1986, there was the infamous Iran Gate. And finally, Mariam, in 1991, the U.S. goes into war with Iraq and the world watches the events unfold on television. This was triggered by Iraq's invasion of A, Kuwait, B, Syria, or C, Jordan. Um, 1991, I believe that was Kuwait. Yes, correct. Good on you. That, that makes Hooray. five out of five. Or I think it was five. Phew. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's sum up the U.S. from the late 20th century and going into our 21st century. Um, in 1992, um, Democratic candidate Bill Clinton is elected president. In that same year, the free trade deal between the U.S., Canada, and Mexico was passed, which is more commonly known as NAFTA. 
Following a scandal broke out in 1998 when it came to light that President Bill Clinton had an affair with a White House worker, Monica Lewinsky. Please don't cringe that I brought this up. <laughs> if you haven't noticed, I've tried to mention all major scandals in U.S. presidential history because this episode is focused on the elections and the presidency. Okay, in 2001, the September 11th attacks changed the U.S. drastically, and the U.S. started its war on terror led by Republican President George W. Bush, uh, which led to the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq. And in 2008, the crash of the financial markets took place in the U.S. and internationally, in addition to Barack Obama becoming the first black president of the United States, and he served two terms, only to be replaced in 2016 by TV celebrity and real estate tycoon Donald Trump. Whew. Okay, now that we've taken a little stroll down history lane, let's briefly cover some civics to better understand how the U.S. political system works. The U.S. Constitution details how its government operates. And one of the main structures put in place by the founding fathers is the federalism concept, which separates states and national powers. And they did this in order to move away from the ruling style of the likes of King George III. This means that for each state of the 50 states of the U.S., a state government has its own local powers and can legislate in things like education, the death penalty, or the consenting age of marriage, for example. And then the federal government, or the national government, is in charge of issues which affect the country as a whole, like the armed forces, foreign policy, currency. Now, the federal government itself is divided into three branches— you have the executive, and that's run by the president and his cabinet. The president is picked by the people for a four-year term and can run for a second term. And the cabinet is picked by the president and is made up of experts within their fields to advise the president. Then there is the legislative branch, as in the U.S. Congress, which is in charge of passing laws, approving budgets, and declaring war. It is made up of the U.S. Senate, the upper house, and the U.S. House of Representatives, the lower house. The Senate has 100 senators, two elected from each state with six-year terms. And the House of Representatives has 423 members, the number per state varying according to the population size of the state. But each member is elected for a two-year term and represents a district of their state, better known as congressional districts. So basically, each state is divided into districts, and we'll touch on that a little later. Finally, the judiciary branch, and that includes the federal courts and the Supreme Courts. The Supreme Court is the highest court in the land, consisting of nine Supreme Court justices, and they're appointed for life by the president, but have to be confirmed by the Senate. And they're in charge of making sure no governmental action is unconstitutional. Now, this three branches of government 
is a kind of checks and balances system where no one branch can abuse its power in theory. For example, the president has the right of veto to stop a bill, but Congress can override the veto if it has the support of two-thirds of both houses. The president can issue an executive order, so without going through Congress, but the Supreme Court can intervene if they deem it unconstitutional, etc., etc. Okay, so now that we have this basic civil background, let's talk about the election. First of all, it should be noted that the U.S. political system is very much characterized by what's called the two-party system, which Meg touched on earlier. You have the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. It would be great to see more diversity, of course, because it must be frustrating for Americans to find all their values in two very polarized parties. So the Republican Party, which is called the GOP, which stands for the Grand Old Party, they believe in things like lowering taxes, protecting gun ownership rights, and placing tougher laws on immigration. I'm generalizing here, but it's rather conservative and more popular in non-metropolitan areas of the U.S. Then the Democratic Party is definitely more liberal-leaning, and they advocate for things like civil rights, environmental protection, health care for all. You get the drill. Now, the huge confusion in the American way of running elections is due to the Electoral College. And there's been so much talk lately about the Electoral College, referring to them as votes. This is not accurate. The Electoral College are people who vote for the presidents, usually according to how their state voted. And different states have different ways of choosing these electors. However, the important takeaway is that the number of these electors, and therefore the number of electoral votes for each state, is equivalent to the number of congressional members of each state, meaning two senators, plus however many House of Representative members that state has. So you can do the math. It's pretty easy. There are 538 electors, which basically is the equivalent of the total of 435 representatives plus 100 senators plus three electors from Washington, D.C. Does that make sense? <laughs> it does. And I never actually knew what the electoral college was based on. There you go. There you go. Now you know. Learn something new every day. <laughs> so the American people... If you're 18 years and above, go out and vote for the presidential candidate that they want. And then in 48 out of the 50 states, you have a winner-takes-all policy. That means in a state, if the majority votes goes to a candidate, and when I say majority, it can be 51% or 99%, all the electors of that state have to then vote for that candidate. The presidential candidate, which secures at least 270 of these electoral votes, becomes president. So again, you can do the math. Half of 538 is 269. Therefore, you need at least 270 to win. Now, another point to consider is that since the number of electors in each state is equivalent to the number of congressional representatives, 
bigger states, obviously more densely populated, end up with more congressional representatives and therefore more electoral votes. And this is why during an election, candidates always like to focus on big states with a big number of electoral votes, or they focus on swing states, which are states that sometimes lean Democratic and sometimes lean Republican. And these are important because so many states are safe states, meaning they will usually vote blue or vote red. And so when this is pretty balanced out, it will usually be up to the swing states or battleground states to determine the outcome. This election, we've seen some swing states go to Biden, like Pennsylvania, and Florida went to Trump. However, we've seen some states flip. Arizona and Georgia, traditionally red states, turned blue this election for Biden, which I found incredible. Finally, I'd like to touch on something my friend Meg mentioned, gerrymandering. You see, every 10 years, a census is conducted, which basically divides each state into districts, better known as congressional districts. We mentioned this earlier. Within each district, people get to vote for one member of the House of Representatives. Uh, when the census is drawn, it's supposed to be drawn fairly meaning each district should have a mix of people. Therefore, they pick a member of the House of Representatives who represents everyone. Gerrymandering, however, is when these districts are purposely drawn in order to have a district be dominated by a specific type of population, for example, Republican-leaning or Democratic-leaning, so as to ensure that the representative elected will most likely be of one or the other party. How is this relevant to presidential elections? Well, sort of. I mentioned only 48 out of the 50 states has a winner-takes-all policy when it comes to the electoral votes. Well, Nebraska and Maine are the exceptions, and they basically give two electoral votes to whoever won the popular vote, and then give one electoral vote per district to whoever won the popular vote within that district. If districts are corruptly drawn to favor one party, this has a small effect overall. So like Meg expressed, she would like to see, for example, a move away from the electoral college system because while it almost always led to electing a president who also won the popular vote, this wasn't the case with Donald Trump, who won the presidency in 2016, even though Hillary Clinton received nearly 3 million more votes. And before that, in 2000, uh, Bush versus Al Gore, uh, those were different circumstances, of course. Al Gore had won the popular vote, but the dispute was over the 25 electoral college votes of Florida. The popular vote count was extremely close, a few hundred votes separating them. So the nation didn't have a declared president. It wasn't settled until the Supreme Court finally ruled in favor of Bush on December 12th. So what's next? Well, like Meg mentioned, this is a transitional period as new presidents are only sworn in on January 20th. Usually, however, the loser concedes and there is a peaceful transfer of power. This, however, isn't the case. Biden has received 306 electoral votes. Trump received 232. Ironically, this is the same number Trump won by against Hillary Clinton. 
the Trump administration has actually been blocking the Biden administration from receiving classified security briefings, federal agencies, and funding needed for a smooth transition. And even though election officials reportedly said that the vote was, quote, the most secure in American history, end quote, Trump supporters are holding rallies to protest the results. So the golden question is, when will this Trump tantrum end? Well, until enough Republican senators admit defeat, because at the moment they're in a way enabling him by not recognizing the results, they're too afraid to upset the Republican base or suffer the wrath of Trump. There is also rumors that Biden's administration will have to take legal action eventually. Who knows? Um, This whole ordeal is frankly, quite embarrassing for Trump's legacy and the sanctity of the presidency. Not that he's upheld this reputation to start with, but this truly is unprecedented. It's an all-time low. So on the next USA-related episode, I won't say on the next episode because that won't be on the USA. Honestly, I don't know when the next USA-related episode will be, but it won't be far off. I'm going to release one for sure once Trump concedes. Whenever that is, Maria, when do you think he'll actually concede? Oh, my God. Will he ever? Until he's just humiliated out of office. Maybe he'll just be dragged out of office like that TikTok. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Well... Either way, on the next USA-related episode, I'll focus more on the incoming administration. So on the profiles of President-elect Joe Biden, um, future Vice President Kamala Harris, um, some of the new members of the U.S. Congress who broke some records. Um, I'll explain the important Senate runoff elections in Georgia come January and some of the activists who played a huge role in this election, um, the new Biden appointees, and all that jazz. Of course, this is my fellow layman, so the show will always focus on context. We can go more in depth with the historic, geographic, and civic content mentioned today, where it's relevant. So stay tuned, because we're going to continue learning together. That's really the whole purpose of the show. Um, Thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Lina Ajabani, coming to you from Paris. If you've enjoyed today's episode, tell your friends about my show and help me spread the word. Um, feel free to follow the show's Instagram, at myfellowlayman. I am working on improving the show. It's a process, so feedback is appreciated. You can head to www.myfellowlayman.com to leave a message. Um, Don't forget to check out the show notes and I hope you'll join me again next time for another episode of My Fellow Layman available wherever you download your podcasts, YouTube or on air in Paris on World Radio Paris. (music) 